Welcome to the Law of Love podcast, where we discuss spirituality, personal development, energetics, and so much more. My name is Andrea Alejandre, and I'm here to amplify love and assist you in your self-healing journey. I'm glad our souls meet again. Hello, my loves. I wanted to apologize because the quality of the audio in this episode is not my best work. I have done everything that I can to try and fix it and make it better, hence the delay on this release. Unfortunately, I was not able to record in my pod lab, so I ended up recording in my studio apartment, which now we know is not the best. However, sit down or not, go on a walk, do whatever you need to do to listen in. This episode is jam-packed with juicy conversations between myself and my friend Julia, who is also a licensed therapist and social worker. So we will be diving deep on spiritual and religious trauma as well as sexual trauma. We're also going to touch on expressing our full spectrum of emotions, psychedelic therapy, the power of saying no, and so much more. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Law of Love. This is your girl, Andrea, and today I have a super awesome, super special guest. I say this every time. I know, I know, but this one is amazingly special to me because not only is she a close friend of mine, she is also a licensed therapist who specializes in spiritual trauma. Julia, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the Law of Love. I know you are also a listener, which means the world to me, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I love every time that I can see your face and hear your voice. So it's so exciting. So I am an associate licensed social worker and therapist. Um, I work with clients out of my private practice up here in Washington. That's where I met you. Very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I specialize in a couple of things. I'm a certified practitioner of psychedelic medicine therapy. So people can come to me and work on integrating their psychedelic experience. Um, They can um, come to me too for religious and spiritual trauma. And also, I'm a certified trauma specialist. So any kind of trauma that they have, they can come to me as well. On a personal note, what my jam is, I'm a mom. I have a 10-year-old who has the superpower of ADHD. So that's super fun. He's awesome uh, and hilarious. And I'm married, have three pets. And so my house is just full of boys. They're all boys. (laughs) And so there's just me. Um, I name all my plants girls. So it feels like maybe I have some solidarity. I've got the spice girls. I've got the plant you gave me, who I named Montana. Montana, because so. I was moving to Montana when I gave her to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she's thriving. And when I am not working, you can find me in my hammock with my dogs. They love to hammock with me. I'm real. I'm like amazed because I knew that you were specific around like spiritual and religious trauma, which is why you're here today. Although I would also love some of your insight around psychedelic therapy, just because, <gasps> just because, I mean, it's amazing. Like, why not? Yes. Let's talk about that too. Let's do it. I'm Let's here. do it. Let's do it. I would love to start off, though, with spiritual trauma, just Mm. because 
it's something that has been coming into my psyche fairly recently, um, both for myself, recognizing that a lot of a lot of my own perceptions and trauma that I put onto like myself as well as other people. So like expectations that I have or just overall the ideas and concepts that society has like thrown and shoved down my throat. A lot of those have for me come from religion growing up in a strict, strict Catholic home which has since dissolved and of course everything has kind of like shit hit the fan and so what was even the point is kind of what it feels like but I do still carry a lot of this like oh that's like ungodly or I'm gonna go to hell for that or you know just just trying to break down these almost like unbearable expectations that are set upon you in the religious concept but then also recognizing that a lot of the same traumas can be found in modern day like new age spirituality or even just like I call it Instagram spirituality but a lot of this stuff is still being repeated and so I would love to dive deep on on spiritual trauma yeah okay So let's start with basically a basic definition. So we all know kind of what we're talking about. So I like to call it spiritual trauma instead of religious trauma because it kind of gives us like an overview, an umbrella, right? So we can put under the umbrella, I'm making hand gestures. Let's just pretend you're seeing an umbrella. (laughs) Podcasts are not good for hand gestures. Let's just pretend. Under the umbrella is religious trauma. So uh, we've got, you know, Christianity all those different kind of religions that go under there. So spiritual trauma is a set of symptoms that are experienced by those who leave controlling groups. We call them high demand groups, any of those groups, because they tend to control and demand a lot of things. The way you live, what you eat, what your beliefs are, all those different things. And so that's why they call them high demand groups as well. They can be authoritarian, they can be dogmatic, but they're basically controlling religious groups or belief belief systems. So those symptoms can include things in your mind. They can include things that you do. They can be social, the way people that you relate with. And so that's kind of like the surrounding points of what spiritual trauma is. So the things that you can ask about whether or not a group is healthy is, can you come and go freely? Can you ask questions freely and get answers without having shame or guilt? Can you have thoughts that are contrary to the group? And can you have non-quote, air quotes there, can you have non-happy thoughts and express them? Those are really important. Additionally, it's interesting. I was just looking on the internet this morning and I found something by the Reclamation Collective, who is like a really great group to follow if you're curious if you have spiritual trauma. And they asked, uh, they showed some questions to ask about the leaders of the group that you're in. So if you're curious whether you're in a healthy or unhealthy group, here's some of the things that you can ask Who do you trust? Who do you go to for guidance, for emotional support, and how has this person earned your trust? Do you have a way out of this group? And if any of these individuals were to interact with you in a way that was felt violating or manipulative or abusive, would there be a way out? 
And then do you have any basic needs that are tied to this group, this person that leads it, or your belief system? Want to examine that? And is there a system of accountability in place to report abuse of trust or power in this group? Do you have an opportunity or sense of safety to set up boundaries with this group? And then has this person or group communicated where their support role begins and ends? Those are super important questions at the beginning or at the end to ask yourself so you understand, okay, was the group I was involved in or is the group that I'm involved in now an abusive group? Wow. So many, so much. Some of the questions that I kind of start with when I work with them. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah. When a client comes to me, those are some of the questions I'm starting to ask them to kind of flesh out. Okay. You feel something's wrong with your experience with this group. It could be a yoga studio that they went to. It could be a retreat center they went to. It could be even like a ayahuasca ceremony they went to, or it could be a mainstream church. Uh, It could be a Christian church, a Mormon church, a JW church, and they're just feeling off. And these are some of the questions that we start to, you know, unthread from that ball of yarn and decide, okay, where is, where is that feeling coming from? And when you find that someone has experienced this type of trauma, what do you recommend? What would be the following steps? Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is we start to unpack their belief in five different areas. We have power and control, trust, intimacy, and self-esteem. And we unpack their beliefs that come from those different areas from their spiritual experience. So example might be, I can no longer trust people in power. And then we take that statement and we unpack that. What does that mean to you? Where did that come from? Is that an absolute? Can that actually be challenged now? And start to just do those one at a time. Where has your self-esteem been wounded? And what are those thoughts that come from it? You know, I am bad. I need someone else to save me in order to be good. A lot of these faiths have someone who has died for them. And therefore, that's the only path for their goodness. Can I be inherently good enough myself? You know, that's a huge, huge one. Fundamentally, I think a lot of therapy is this. Am I good enough? Just full stop. Am I good enough? So many things come from that. Sexual trauma physical abuse, spiritual trauma, trauma in general. I was hurt by someone purposely. Am I good enough to not be harmed? Why did someone harm me purposely? Why me? 
am I good enough to not be harmed? And it's a huge thing to unpack. Yeah, especially I it's think so important in even like current spirituality or what what I think is going around right now, which isn't a specific affiliation to any specific religion or even ideology, but more constantly wanting to change and constantly needing to up level. And I am guilty of this myself, this underlying belief that who I am right now isn't good enough and I have to change in order to be worthy of receiving money, worthy of receiving love, worthy of receiving community. And I know that this is something you and I talk about. Um, for those of you listening, Julia and I have like a bi-weekly call sesh where we just kind of brain dump and talk and have a juicy conversation. So this is essentially the conversations we would have off the recording, but now we're we're putting it out for you guys to listen as well and be a part of. So welcome, welcome, welcome. But one of the major things that we've talked about is how much I felt that I needed to become someone else because this current version of me wasn't up to par or wasn't enough, right? Like one of the things we've gone over a lot is enoughness and being like enough to be worthy of showing up, enough to receive love, enough to be worthy of affection and everything else that I desire. And there's this I think for me, it started deeply in my Catholicism growing up and constantly being told that I needed to change and become someone else in order to be better, in order to have the capacity to receive what I thought it was I I deserved, not that I didn't deserve it now. It was just, it was rooted in my belief system that unless I became practically like a saint, I would either go to hell or be punished. And so there's this forever chasing after the idealistic version of myself, the highest, highest self is what I call it now, which I continue to pursue, but no longer for other people to accept me, but now to find who I really am at my core. So maybe it's not really about becoming someone else, but it's about unbecoming all of the layers and all of the shit that people have thrown at you. Um, but I, I see this even in like my day-to-day life. Like it, it sounds like it shouldn't be a big deal. And yet I still like put on a certain dress and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's too short. I'm going to make someone sin. And I have to catch myself mm-hmm. of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I am actually not responsible for other people's actions. I live in Arizona. It's like a hundred degrees already. I deserve to feel comfortable in my body and I deserve to be comfortable in my day-to-day lives. And what other people do in response to that is actually not my, not my monkey, not my circus but also the intention that I'm doing something with, I'm not doing it with the intention to be malicious. So that's where I think there is very much a right from wrong. So if you're doing something to be malicious, then that's different than if you're just doing something with the intention of feeling good, the intention of being authentic, the intention of being human or just existing or getting to be alive. And having that shunned is one of the most traumatic things at least for me, was one of the most traumatic things of like, I'm showing up and expressing myself authentically. And that is wrong. And that to me is like part of part of what I'm working through. And I've continued to work through and I have been working through for so long is stripping back these layers of like, what is actually coming from me that I don't like that I don't want to do and what is set from societal construct or standards of 
this is bad and therefore you shouldn't do it. Okay, cool. Thank you for setting up that soapbox for me, because here I go. One of the huge topics that comes up in my Zoom office is purity culture. Oh, my God. And Yeah, cool. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to go there. For, for those of up. you guys who can't see Julia, she legit just rolled up her sleeves right now and, like, stood up super straight. <laughs> Parody culture. Let's this bring one, it. This one. Yeah, this one makes me so mad. Um, if you grew up in, well, if you grew up in any age, this is this is a thing. But if you started growing up in like the zeros and on, you were subjected to purity culture. Now, I'm not saying that it didn't happen before then, but it was like a huge thing starting in the zeros with um, Josh Harris. And I kissed dating goodbye and boy meets girl. It was a thing. Um, so came the policing of people's clothing. And by people, I mean girls and women, females assigned at birth. And oh my gosh. Okay. So we're sitting, we're sitting in uh, church pews. And passing out roses, and we had everybody touch it along the way, and then it gets back up to the front, and the pastor would say, so you are this rose, and would you like to be this rose being touched this much? And your virginity is like this. If you've slept with this many people, you are no longer this pretty rose. Or you have people pass along gum. You know, like, would you like to be chewed more than once? No, that's gross. You know, and it's not directed at the assigned males at birth. It is directed at us. (laughs) And then we get to clothing. Now, clothing is also policed to the assigned females at birth and we must not show our shoulders certainly no low-cut clothes and our outfits must be below the knees and here's why we will lead our brothers in christ direct quote to sin and Here's my beef with that, other than that's just outrageous, is, is this. This assumes, and it's outrageous, and men should be ticked. This assumes that boys and men are predators at birth. You should be outraged in the church, men and boys, that they assume You are automatically going to sin if someone wears a tank top, that you are going to prowl. That's offensive. But you are just basically told, you know, you're basically told that you cannot control yourself and leads to, that corrupts you for toxic masculinity And for predatory culture, 
for the rest of your lives. It teaches you not to control yourself because yep. it's the girl's fault. I saw this study that the intention or the thought that comes from, for example, a teacher that doesn't tell the student outright, the student is dumb, but the teacher will think that way. And the energy emitted when you pass out that kid's test or you talk to them, they pick up on that. And so now they are receiving these energetic codes of this person thinks I'm stupid. So then why even bother? Why even try? And it's not every time, obviously, but it's enough times where there's a scientific study on this. Now it's proven that our intentions affect much more than just the outcome of the universe and the metaverse and the cosmos, but even directly one another. And so if we are putting this predatory energy on men, then what are they going to, like, there's there's the accountability, right? Like, this is who I'm expected to be. And so therefore I am. I don't think it's a coincidence that we find so much sexual trauma and sexual abuse in highly religious environments or highly spiritual environments. I think that it is obviously a direct correlation between how the discrepancy of how they treat females assigned at birth and males. And it is, I think, very, very predominant. And I, you were like giving the example of the rose and I felt triggered. (laughs) I was like having a flashback to literally sitting in the pew and it wasn't the exact rose example, but it was something very similar. And again, this like utter responsibility that is put on females assigned at birth and also elected females that they are responsible for actions of other people and they are responsible for the misbehavior of other people when, um, excuse me, we didn't sign up for this. Nobody is, nobody is coming into this earth and saying, I am going to specifically tent, you know, like people to sin. Like no one, no one thinks about that. And so why are we being treated like, like villains? Like I remember, being a child and having my mom constantly harass me about what I was wearing because I was trying to seduce men. And I'm like 13, right? Like I'm just, I'm just trying to live my best life. But I think it also is extremely, extremely traumatizing and it goes past just what we're wearing. And I'm going to give you guys a very personal example. I don't tend to talk about my relationship with my partner because it's very sacred to me, but I think it needs I think it needs to be said. So I grew up with a lot of purity culture and a lot of being like it being instilled in me that if I did not wait until marriage, then my husband wouldn't respect me, my husband wouldn't love me, my husband wouldn't care for me. So when I had my sexual assault, it took even longer for me to recover from that because it wasn't just I failed as a person, like I felt responsible for what happened to me, but also I felt I failed as a Christian, which for a long time, I still was considering myself a Christian. And so I was also blaming myself in the religious aspect of like, this is my fault. Like I did something wrong and I had to find my connection with source, God, the divine, whatever you want to call it. I had to find that connection again for me to be able to fully heal and understand that, no, it wasn't my fault and I am not responsible. And even up until honestly, 
my ayahuasca ceremony, when I sat with grandmother ayahuasca, that was a very healing moment for me in in recovering pieces of myself that I had lost, not only due to the sexual abuse, but the guilt and the shame that came with the sexual abuse. And then on top of that, I couldn't talk to anyone about it. I couldn't talk to my mom. I was only, I want to say like 18, 19. I couldn't talk to my mom about it because instantly I knew it would be a well, what did you do? You shouldn't have put yourself in that situation. Therefore, it's your fault. You instilled this on, upon yourself. I couldn't talk to my dad. I couldn't talk to a counselor or a mentor because obviously people are, you know, they have to, they have to express that to someone else. And so coming from a place where the one, the one person I thought I could trust, I couldn't trust. And so it added another layer of trauma on, I had to keep this to myself for years, for years. And if I, I think about this all the time, what if I hadn't been uber religious? What if I had parents that understood that it wasn't my fault, that I that I could talk to them about experiences around sexual behavior and what is predatory and what is not? Because I was literally seeing signs from this person of them being a predator and I didn't know how to recognize them because I wasn't talked about like it wasn't talked about it wasn't mentioned to me and when it happened I was completely blown and caught off guard when the reality is there had been signs that this person was deliberately deliberately accosting me so there's like so much to unravel when it comes to to all of this I don't know if we can get it down in just one episode but I appreciate us trying I I have so many things to say like uh, a, I'd like to really acknowledge what you just said, and thank you for sharing it. Um, it's a really sacred thing to share your story, and thank you for doing so. I resonate with that story because I have a very similar one. And um, I can only imagine not only feeling lonely, but feeling alone in that story. And how hard that must have been. I was reminded about the education program that the Duggars use about abuse. And they, they use a program called the Advanced Training Institute. And they basically say, you know, what's most important, what did they damage, and then forgive your offender. He damaged your body, but if you had to choose, would you rather be mighty in spirit, and then you need to forgive them and turn over to God and ask God to pardon them. And I, I realize a lot of people use this kind of model. And there's a difference between, I think there's a lot of times that we are taught within a religious or spiritual framework that we need to forgive offenders of trauma. Don't buy into that. 
I buy into the idea that we can move on and move through without needing to forgive. I don't know how that sits with you, but I don't think you need to. Yeah. So that's really, that's fascinating. I actually do believe that my forgiveness was pivotal in my personal healing. And I make this Mm. my experience because I can't speak for other people. And I will say there are other things in my life that were traumatic that I have not been able to fully forgive, not even the person. I recognize that the person, the human that did this act was also flawed and hurt people hurt people. And so I'm not necessarily angry or upset at the human as much as I am over the entire experience or the fact that the human was even in that space to do what they did. However, specific to this, I've found that forgiveness for me was a piece of me taking my power back because for so Mm -hmm. long, I was angry. I was bitter. I was disappointed and I was broken. There was a long, Mm -hmm. long, long time after this incident where I wasn't having any form of sexual interaction, even with myself. Like I couldn't even bring myself Mm -hmm. to put myself into a a sexy, sensual, energetic space because I just didn't have it in Mm -hmm. me. And part of Mm -hmm. claiming that back for me was, in fact, forgiving myself first. And I even found that I had to forgive God. Like I had to forgive my version of the almighty and all powerful who quote unquote, let this happen to me. And I had Mm. to restructure how I saw my experience in order for me to be able to move on. And this is just what worked for me. And it, I've tried the same formula with other things and it hasn't worked. But when it came to my sexual trauma, I had to look at it and I had to say, I take radical responsibility for my portion of healing. I take radical responsibility for not what happened to me because I I am not responsible for, for calling in this trauma. I am, however, responsible for bringing myself out of it because no one is going to come and save me. No one is going to come and do the work for me. And so I have to forgive myself for letting myself be in a deep, dark hole for three years. And I need to forgive. I need to forgive the experience. And what can I learn from this experience? And none of it, let me tell you, none of it had to do with, I need to dress less sexy. I need to be less feminine. I need to, like, none of that. It was, I need to learn that I can trust my gut instinct. When my gut instinct says run, I need to trust that. And that is what I'm taking away. I need to learn that I actually cannot trust everyone. And that's okay. That doesn't make me a bad human. I need to learn that when I say no, I can use more than just my voice because I said no and it wasn't listened to. So maybe my lesson in that instinct is my no is strong and valid and worthy. And just because one person didn't listen to it doesn't mean that it's not powerful. I get to take away all of these beautiful lessons while still getting to be upset and hurt over the experience. Mm-hmm. It still happened and it still traumatized me. But for me, forgiveness was pivotal 
But like I said, this was my own personal experience. And as it relates to other things, I haven't been able to fully forgive maybe like the person, right? So maybe there's someone in my life, not maybe, there is someone in my life that I've, I've had a lot of ups and downs with. And I'll just say it because it's my mom. Everyone knows it's my mom. So my mom and I have had a very tumultuous relationship. And there are certain things that I don't know if I could ever fully forgive my mom for because I've never even received an apology. However, my healing doesn't require forgiveness, much like you're saying right now. My healing can't come from me expecting her to say, I'm sorry, this happened. I fucked up. Sometimes my healing has to come from that version of my mom is no longer existing. I released that version of who I thought she was and, and who I thought I needed her to be in order for me to heal. So mourning that part of her and the part of me that was imaginary was ex- the expectations of what I wanted that relationship to look like. And, and this transfers over to anything, again, back to, back to sexual trauma, but not receiving an apology and also being okay with the fact that maybe I will in the future, but right now, I cannot and will not forgive and forget because I need to sit with I need to sit with this. I need to learn from it. I need to feel my way through it. And when I'm ready, okay, maybe. But my currently my healing looks so so different for like every aspect of my life and sometimes I do find that forgiveness is pivotal much like my sexual experience. And now like if I hadn't forgiven myself, if I hadn't forgiven the person, if I hadn't forgiven the circumstances, I mean, it was it was like the perfect storm. I would not be able to have the sexual relationship that I have with my partner, which is full of love and full of exploration and full of kink and full of like surprises and newness and things that when I wasn't fully healed from my sexual experience, I would flip out on Michael. I'd, you know, he would be doing absolutely nothing wrong, but something would trigger and then I would just break down. Mm-hmm. And so it's been, mm-hmm. it's been a long, long journey. And even after all of that, one last comment on that. Some days I find that I have not fully forgiven and forgotten. And I allow those days too. So sometimes I find that I'm still yeah. freaking pissed. I am still angry and I am still heartbroken over it. And those days are allowed just as much as the days where I'm like, it happened, I can move forward and live my best life. So both are equally important. Mm -hmm. Both are extremely, extremely valuable. And both are necessary, arguably. I love all of that so much. I love that for you, forgiveness was necessary. And that it was helpful for your process. And for some, that's required to be able to move through and move on. Absolutely. There are many that it is. And for those, processing and moving through requires some level of forgiveness. For some others, they battle with needing to forgive in order to move on. And for those, I offer the idea that you do not have to in order to move on or move through. So that's 
the only thought I throw out there is that there's hope for people who battle with the idea of I must forgive in order to move through. And I offer the suggestion that you don't. You know, what's hilarious is I also sat in that space of I need to forgive him. I need to move on. And when I was fighting to forgive him, it was impossible to do so. And it was impossible to forgive myself. And it actually brought a lot more resentment and a lot more anger because I was like, why can't I just move on? But when I stopped Mm -hmm. trying to force myself and I did it from a place of self-love and like self-liberation, that's when it flowed Mm -hmm. for me. But it took a minute. I, I definitely gave myself time to just be fucking pissed to just be upset, to just be angry. And Mm -hmm. not necessarily that I held that resentment, but I was resentful. And I gave myself my human experience. I gave my, my, my vessel, my essence, I gave it what it needed in that moment. And that Mm -hmm. was, sometimes it looked like sobbing and screaming and yelling and cussing and, and just throwing things and being angry. And sometimes it looked like numbness. Sometimes I needed to just like give myself that break from feeling all of those feelings. But you're a thousand percent right. Mm. You don't have you don't have to forgive to move on. Mm. Well, and you know, back to spiritual trauma on this is that a lot of people who have come from or are still in spiritual groups may not feel like they have the space to have those emotions, especially assigned females at birth, we are allowed two emotions. We're allowed to be happy and we're allowed to be sad. Males are allowed to be happy and they're allowed to be angry. So when we have feelings of anger, where are we allowed to express that? How are we allowed to express that? It's, it's difficult because, one, our faith typically does not support our anger. And two, our partners typically do not support our anger. And so where, where is our outlet for righteous rage? Where do we go when we're in a group or recovering from a group? And then you just like let this boil within you. And then you have guilt and shame in there because you have these feelings that we're not allowed to express or weren't allowed to express. Or don't even know what to do with. And that's hard too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, what did you call it? You said you called it something specific. Righteous rage. Righteous rage. I love that. I call it sacred rage. Um, (sighs) Because for me, being angry has been one of the most healing practices for me. And especially growing up in a hyper-religious household, you were very much expected to, quote unquote, be on your best behavior. And if you were angry, you were ungodly. And if you were angry, then you weren't considered for heaven. You weren't worthy enough, right? So 
I was never allowed to be angry. And I definitely struggled with rage, especially going through like middle school and high school. I remember punching lockers at school because I would get so angry and I would just get so upset and I would punch and hit things at school because that was the only place that I felt safe to express myself, which is hilarious because if you think about school, you're actually like, that's one of the least places where you're allowed to show up and express yourself. But that's how strict and tight and like, quote unquote, put together my household was that I couldn't even show up and express. And so after years, I finally started to remember that I was made to express every emotion I made and I was built and created to fully embody every emotion. And much like a child, a child can have a temper tantrum and look like they are just, you know, falling apart and scream like someone is killing them. And then five seconds later, they're like, mom, I love you. I'm sorry. Like they've moved on. Energetically, they have released that energy. And so they don't hold it in their body. So here I was walking around for years as just an angry chick. Like I was just pissed and it was showing up in my skin. I had severe acne, Um, not to brag, but my skin is pretty flawless right now. Um, And I had, I was extremely overweight. My hair was falling out. I always just felt like I was on the verge of becoming the Hulk. Like, you know, that quote where the Hulk is like, I'm always angry. It's like, that's what I felt Mm -hmm. like. Like one little thing would just trigger me and send me into oblivion. And when I started my spiritual practice, one of the most amazing and liberating things has been giving myself room to be angry and warning Michael. So Michael and I have had several very candid, long discussions around what it is that I need to be able to feel safe, not just with him, but by myself. And part of that is I need to be able to have space to show up and be loud and be weird and be obnoxious as much as I need space to show up and be angry and be sad. And I don't want you to have to fix me. I don't want you to make me feel like I need to get over it and move on. Sometimes I'm just going to need an angry day. And what I really want you to do is just bring me tea and massage my feet. Like if you want to be helpful, that's what I need from you. And I need you to just let me sit here and pout. And There have been many, many times where I'm like, hey, babe, I need a rage moment. I need to throw some pillows. I need to scream at the top of my lungs. And I don't want you to hold me back because shit's going to probably break. And that's what I need right now. And he'll leave me alone. Like, he will let me do my thing. But there have been equal moments where that rage expresses through sadness and Actually, one of the most memorable times for me was when we were traveling full time in the RV and we stopped in the middle of no man's land. Um, Something broke on the RV that like needed to get fixed or else we couldn't actually move. So we ended up being stuck there. There was no reception. We were running really, really low on our finances for that week. So it was really like a stressful time, not to mention we're new RVers. So it was like one thing on top of the other. And I got to this point where I was literally yelling at him and I'm not a yeller anymore. It's not what I do. So he goes, hey, babe, I think you need to take a walk into nature and scream it off. 
And this was his suggestion to me was you need to like go do your thing if that's what you need to go do. And I did. I literally walked into nature and I gave myself five minutes to just scream at the top of my lungs and release that energy. And then I came back and I was like, do you want me to make this dinner? Be hungry? You know, like, what's up? I'm good. We're back. But it's like so unnatural for us to behave in this way that until we confront someone who's open like you in therapy to talk about it or someone like me who's weird and just talks about it all the time, it's not it's not really being presented. It's not really something that we are like giving each other permission to be like, you get to be weird, dude. You get to show up and be like mad, upset, mm-hmm. sad, whatever you need, you get you get that space. Mm-hmm. And if I have the capacity, I will hold that space for you. If I don't have the capacity, I will let you do your thing and I will go do my thing. You brought up so many uh, things that I would love to address. Um, one, scream therapy is a thing. We do it. It is? Yeah. I had no idea. Huh. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's something I've definitely recommended for my clients. To, like, go to a quarry and scream it out. Yes. Amazing. Um, it's interesting because you were talking about animals and the fact that they they will have a moment, they'll discharge their stress, and then they're fine. Everything's fine. And with us, we tend to just hold it and don't do anything about it. And when we don't do anything, we're stuck in this fight or flight or freeze because we're holding it. And we're either not expressing it to our people or we stay in the situation. Sometimes we have to, and that's a whole different story. But, like, we aren't expressing our feelings, like you're saying with your partner. Like, that's fantastic. Like, if you need to live in your feels safely for a while, then awesome. Great. Do that. Or go out and yell. Or walk around in the grass and hug a tree. I know that sounds woo, but seriously that does things oh baby you're on the law of love podcast every single listener is super woo and they'll probably tell you that immediately their reaction is to go hug a tree this is our community it's amazing (laughs) and they're awesome and I love every single one of them so they you can get as woo as you want oh I love that um but yeah those are like my my go-tos like go scream it out bro like get it done and then you are going to feel better. We all need a good scream. It's been a while since I had a good scream. I need one. And it just reminded me too your story where just the other day, I was totally triggered. Um, a person in my circle was telling me about white privilege and how it was overused. And I was just, I had a moment. <laughs> a big one. And uh, Oh, I can still feel it. I I was up here in my office and I had such rage within me and I hadn't I felt like I couldn't like A, I was ashamed of it. And that was my first feeling was like I am ashamed of how much rage I have right now. And it was like a callback to like women can't feel rage. And I, I 
now I'm realizing why. Thank you, therapist Andrea. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and I just remember going, I really want to go downstairs in the garage and break some boards. Really do. And then I didn't, which I should have, because that would have felt amazing. And I just, like, I sat here and just, like, clenched my fists as hard as I could in, like, my whole body. And I was just like, ah, white privilege is not overused. Oh, the term is totally underused. Anyway, so. I'm I'm not laughing at you. I'm actually laughing oh, because no. um, I love you so much. And. For those of you who don't know Julia personally, she is like the best ally. She will stand back and hold space for you and be like, no, I don't fucking understand, but I will do my research and I will support you a thousand percent. And so um, she actually genuinely gets really, really upset when discrimination happens, when any form of privilege is not taken into account, because as Oh, as an Anglo white female, she recognizes her privilege. So thank you. Thank you for being an amazing ally. Thank you. Um, I <laughs> want to, you're so, you're so cute. Thank you. Thank you. I want to also bring up that on this spectrum, on this scale of emotions, the same way we don't let ourselves feel anger and sadness because we gotta, we gotta be, we've gotta be good women. We've gotta like hold our house together, hold ourselves together. We also don't allow ourselves to receive pleasure and joy and fulfillment. And this was something that Grandmother Ayahuasca showed me was how I was keeping myself in a box of I can work from the spectrum of like negative 10 to 10, but anything else is too much, whether it be good, bad, positive, negative, however you want to look at it. And so I wasn't letting myself fully get as angry as I needed to get. Post ayahuasca ceremony, by the way, I have been super, super angry and I have been like flying high, ecstatic, happy, merry-go-lucky, like just on life. And so I've been letting myself express and feel all of the range of emotions and it feels so good. Like when I am happy, I let myself be super happy and ecstatic and, and loud and bubbly because that's how I feel in the moment. And when I'm mad, I let myself be really angry. And that doesn't need to look like being rude or disrespectful or mean. It could just be, hey, just so you know, I am angry and I'm going to be angry and I'm just letting myself be angry and I need alone time. And like that has worked out great and phenomenal because my anger moments have shortened. And so I'm actually angry for five minutes now instead of five hours. And my happy moments have expanded and amplified. So now I'm not only just happy for an hour or two, I'm just like fucking happy. Like I am happy pretty much all the time, not in a weird, like fake happy way, just in a life is good. I appreciate every moment. I'm alive, healthy, looking good, feeling good type of way. And when these moments of rage come, instead of being shameful or resentful that I'm feeling them, I'm starting to embrace them, almost like a shamanic death, almost like an ego death of, I know this is happening because I am up leveling. I know this is coming to me now because I am ready to move through this phase of my life so that I can finally move on, so that I can work on the new next thing, whatever that can be. And not that life is always work, like it doesn't need to be, but somehow it kind of is. So I feel like I'm always just always constantly working through 
something. And instead of being angry about it now, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is something that I get to do and I'm excited about it. Can we redirect a little bit? Unless you have something to say about that. Um, that's awesome. Okay. Love you for it. We're redirecting a little bit because I want to make sure that I pick your brain around psychedelic therapy. This has been one of the most interesting topics and you and I have talked about it in the past, but I would love for you to bring it to the law of love listeners. What is psychedelic therapy? Is it legal? What's the science? What are the benefits? Give it to me all. I trained to be a ketamine assisted therapist right now in my state. Ketamine is the only legalized assisted therapy. In other states, there are several other ones that are coming into being, like MDMA. But right now, ketamine is the only one that we can use. So with ketamine, it's given in several different ways. So there's, I'm going to try to remember it all. There's IV. There's the shot, there's nasal spray, and there's one more that I don't remember. So we're just going to pretend I don't, that the, it doesn't exist, but it does. Um, what I work with, <laughs> um, what I work with right now is because I'm an associate and not fully licensed, when I'm fully licensed, I will dabble in this, but when um, right now, what I work with is people before and after their appointments. So they have two appointments with me a week. So they um, come to see me and they set their intentions with me. And so they talk a little bit about why they're using ketamine. And um, I will come back to that. And what they want to see happen in their ketamine sessions. So um, what their intentions are, what they like to see in their ketamine sessions, and maybe some of their goals. And then after their ketamine sessions, they come to me and they talk to me a little bit about their what they saw, what they experienced, what they felt. And we kind of go back to their goals and see how they mesh up and how they want to integrate their experience into their life. And then they repeat that however many sessions that they have. Some people do it every week for a very long time. Some people only have six sessions, and so they stay with me for 12, for six weeks, um, etc. I'm going to rewind because I forgot. Ketamine is used for treatment-resistant depression, and it's also used for trauma, for PTSD. So if you're using it for treatment-resistant depression, usually you have to, quote, and I hate this one, fail two antidepressants, which means using them for their therapeutic dose for six months and it not be working for you. So that's how you access ketamine. Um, and there's also, oh, this was the other one. You can use it at home now. So you, there's pills that you can take at home, which is very interesting. I'm not sure how I feel about it yet, but you can here in Washington, which is very interesting to me. Um, what other questions do you have about ketamine? Let's talk about it. What do you want to know? Yeah. So what are the effects in the body? So what does it feel like to be on ketamine? And how did we get from the dare to now incorporating <laughs> psychedelics 
in not only our healing experiences, which our ancestors have been doing forever, just throwing it out there. They were the OGs, but also bringing it to like the 21st century. Like now it's uh, an accepted form of therapy that has science behind it. So um, if you don't mind giving us your perspective on those. Yeah. Can we just talk about the bullshit that dare is? Oh, 1000%. Go ahead. Lead the way. Here it is again, rolling up my sleeve. Dare is such bullshit. Yes, there's a long history of drugs, and I'm air quoting again. Um, Dare came a little bit after the war on drugs, which affected disproportionately our marginalized populations um, and put so many people of color in jail and many of which are still incarcerated just saying can we talk about that yeah just saying no one should be incarcerated for cannabis yeah no um and i'm hoping that when uh once it's legal in all the states that they um people are retroactively uh, released and reimbursed for all of their time that they've been in jail, although that will not come close to reparations for any of that, which I think is just, it's just crap. Um, But there affected marginalized communities back then and continues to affect marginalized communities now. And so if if we even just consider the difference between like, um, Uh, as someone who's of color and uses drugs, whether that be cannabis, psychedelics, or like man-made drugs to someone who's white, there's an immense disproportionate reaction to how, how, yeah, just, just in general, there's like a disproportionate reaction of how we respond to people of color versus people who are not of color. And I want to take a moment to just acknowledge that even when it comes to sacred psychedelics, such as ayahuasca, there are women, and I won't call anybody out specifically because I don't think that's the point here, but there are white women, white males who use psychedelics as a form of healing, which is amazing. And their response from their communities, from their public is always praise. This is amazing. Good for you. That is not the same response given to people of color, given to, honestly, the people who have always used these psychedelics as medicine, that have used these powerful plants for centuries, and yet when they use these medicines, their their response, the, the response from other people is very different. And so I think that that energy carries over even in the healing industry now for for the spiritual healing that is happening now. Thank you so much for calling that out. I think that that's super important to address. Um, I always want to hear about the what's really happening and any time that communities are being marginalized for especially things that belong to them. You know, this is something that especially the indigenous communities, like this is, this is their space. 
they should be leading the way. They should be the ones that are speaking for it. And we should be humbly following them and not taking over that space and not speaking for them or certainly not being thought of above. And yuck, all of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that like, oh, people that are of, you know, that are not indigenous can't find value in these plants or can't speak from them or can't, you know, I I completely believe in, in the mission. What I am saying, and I really do want to clarify to make sure that my point is getting across to everyone is that there should be an equal response to the plant being used, to psychedelics being used, even through like ketamine, right? Like there should be an equal response to everyone, whether you are of color, whether you are marginalized or not. And I think that even in the 21st century, as a female of color, I can tell that there is a difference in some responses that are to me versus my husband, who is white. Um, but yeah, so getting back to the actual medicine and getting back to the potency of ketamine, what does it feel like in your body, and why is it being like why is it being used now? And do you think that there could be a potential expansion or growth or integration of more plant medicines as scientific healing? Or science-based healing, I guess I should say. Yes, yes. Okay. What does it feel like? I can tell you, um, as a therapist who um, also has PTSD, um, and by the way, therapists can have mental health diagnoses. So if you want to become a therapist and you are scared to do so because you have a mental health condition, if it is something that you have control on, that you go to therapy for, that you are well balanced and you're taking your meds and you're feeling good, carry on. Become a therapist. You have plenty to offer. Carry on with your bad self. So I just want to plug that. Um, So I have PTSD, and so I go to ketamine myself, and so I can speak from um, personal experience. So what it feels like, um, I do the nasal spray, um, and so you you do the nasal spray. There's um, three rounds in it. You take every five minutes, and then um, it starts to feel a little funky. Um, You... It's, uh, I listen to music and I have an uh, eye mask. And so I'm just like in my own little world. Um, depends on what I listen to. I don't know. And then for me, I have a thing where I, this will make sense in a second. When you close your eyes, can you picture a cat? Like, can you, can you see a cat? Okay. When I close my eyes, I cannot see a picture of a cat. So I can't like visualize things. So this is my theory on why when I'm in ketamine, I don't see pictures of things. So I see colors and kind of not really shapes, but kind of formations of things um, instead of objects. So I see lots of colors. I see things moving around and lots of like, those sort of things with my eyes. And then like my body ends up 
matching those colors. So for instance, I have this beautiful color, this, this deep burgundy color that's just love. And it and my body just feels embraced and held. And there's this like oneness with the universe feeling. And it is this beautiful everything color. And then there's this like passing blue color that's more of a like peace color and then there's so there's different colors that mean different things to me that just kind of pass through and what's interesting is at the end when I'm coming out of it I see these different shapes that I'm pretty sure are brain neurons and it's it's a weird thing they look kind of like little circles with legs on it (laughs) I don't know so it's interesting I don't know what it is but that's my experience And then when I'm coming out of it, I'm still a little woozy, a little drunk feeling. Um, So it takes about two hours to do your appointment, and then you have to have someone drive you home. So um, that's kind of what the experience is like for ketamine. Um, Yeah, that's what that's like. Um, Is there going to be... Oh, sorry. I just wanted to ask if there is like a head high. Do you have any specific sensations that are heightened or lessened in your body? So personally, what you're describing reminds me a lot of my ayahuasca sit. And for me, it was mm-hmm. different colors. And I and I do, I do visualize a lot, especially with shamanic journeys. I'm mm-hmm. very accustomed to seeing things through like my third eye. And so when you're describing this, it's kind of putting me back into that state of, of feeling that. And it reminds me of the sensations that I was feeling in my body. And I felt like in that moment, I was hyper aware of my posture, of my body, of the way that things touched my body, um, specifically my clothes, my hair, like everything just felt the sensations felt like they were heightened whereas for me I could smell um I could smell words like I could smell and taste Ah. sounds and I could see uh sounds so I would make a sound and it would create a ripple effect of colors and depending on what I was saying it would change colors, but then also depending on the intention and frequency and like buoyancy that I said things with, it would create a different ripple effect or a different combination. Mm. So I'm curious if any of that would be similar when you're under a ketamine treatment. Ooh, that A is so cool. Awesome. Okay. So for me, my body, I'm always on this beautiful couch covered by this weighted knitted blanket. It's like a really heavy um, woven um, with lots of loops. Um, so for me, I always feel like I'm in this like nest and my body just like settles in and it's very heavy and it's just like in a good way. It's just like, oh, you know, I just like sink into this warm, heavy nest. But my fingers are always playing with these loops that are on my blanket. And so, and sometimes it just like plays with it. And um, 
I often tap to the music with it. I haven't actually tried saying anything on this ketamine because there's only me and the and the um my nurse practitioner in the office and I've always felt kind of wary to try it <laughs> but I have someone who wants to come and scribe for me um and so if she comes I'm clearly going to say stuff and that would be really interesting to find out yeah I would I would love I would love to know because during my own experience, I loved making sounds and making like noises, not just with my mouth, but also like clapping was like one of those things that I was like, whoa, oh my gosh, this is insane. I can't even believe the energy that flows through me and I can like control them. And I honestly felt like, I felt like an airbender. It was just like learning how to manipulate my own energy. And even um, so I practiced Tai Chi and Qigong and Reiki. And so in those moments, I was bringing my own energy like I would when I work on a client and it was visible and tangible. So I would be interested if that same experience would be would be similar to to your ketamine experience because of the way that you're describing seeing the colors and the formations. It's mm-hmm. it's a lot of the same a lot of the same thing. One of the things I talked about with you, um, and in my ayahuasca podcast episode was realizing that we are intricately connected and we are literally enmeshed in like a web of energy where I can tug on one thing and that'll tug a thousand different things. And really the butterfly effect of like every single little thing matters, but then also nothing matters. And I know that you had told me in the past that that was also something you experienced through ketamine. Mm. That like infinite Mm -hmm. oneness. I wouldn't even know how to connect it. Yeah, for sure. I definitely have felt, and that's kind of part of that red, maroon, burgundy color. It's this, I am one with everything, and yet I am only one. You know, this, like, yes, I am part of, I'm interconnected with everything, all all of nature, all of even buildings, and all of these things, and yet I'm such a small grain of sand among it all. And, and yet both were really soothing. Yeah, I matter, even though I'm this small, you know? Yeah, yes. Oh my gosh, there's something so liberating about finding yourself in a vast sea of nothingness, of like, I am so temporary on this earth. I am but a blink of an eye, and I'm here now, and I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow. Like, there's just something about it really hitting you that this is, we're just visiting. We're literally just visiting. And also there's also this sensation of power and empowerment of seeing how powerful we are, how connected we are, how truly godly we are. And this kind of relates me mm-hmm. back to the, the religious aspect, because as much as we can talk about religious trauma, there is also a lot of beautiful messages and beautiful foundations that come from religion. 
or maybe don't come from religion, but religion exemplifies them, such as we were created in God's image. And for the longest time, I thought that meant like physically. I was like, yeah, I'm physically like I look like God. Okay. But then realizing that it's it's so much more micro and macro, like literally the universe shows up within me in the way that my atoms revolve and change and grow and evolve and transmute and alchemize the same way the universe does. Mm -hmm. And I expand the same way the universe does. And I can create the same way the universe does. And I can manipulate energy the same way the universe does. And realizing this was so powerful. And like, it awoke me to this new version of how much I can manifest, but also how much I can and cannot do. And the power to not do things is as powerful as doing things. That was like a big one for me of like, me saying no means that I am making space for things that are a fuck yes. Like it was it was this whole huge, like everything's connected, nothing's connected, we're all one and we're all nothing. Mm-hmm. And it left me, it kind of pulled the rug out from under me for a little bit. But once I sat with it, it was beautiful. It was like this, this coming to Jesus moment. I have no other ways to say it. Can we talk about saying no for a second? Oh, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. And talk about whatever you want. <laughs> I'm just going to take over. So take over. Go. This is your episode. Oh, wow. I could do anything. Um, has so many clients that basic, one of the basic things we need to learn is how to say no. And we as assigned females at birth often don't know how to say no. Are the helpers, we are the caregivers, we are often the fawners, the ones who are people pleasing and need to be loved by all. And that involves saying yes to detriment of our own needs. And those build up. We become overwhelmed. We become overworked. We become, we have lack of joy and freedom and ability to explore who we really are because we're so busy saying yes to all these things that we do not want to say yes to. The power of saying no, which is the opposite of the book that says the power of yes. The power of no is incredible. And I think we're scared of it. Yeah. Because saying no signifies that that other person is not important or that you're going to hurt their feelings or something else and really what you're saying is this is a boundary I am setting for myself and if they have a problem with you saying no that's a that's a red flag for you it's saying they are not okay with you setting a boundary for yourself for your time for your energy for your love for your family and that's where you start to go, huh, maybe I should think more about this relationship. Yeah. yeah. And 
yeah, it's it's just kind of one of those places where you just start to go, huh, this friendship. And, you know, when you start saying no, that might take a little bit because it's not an automatic, oh, well, this friendship is, is shitty. It's you have to practice with that friendship and saying no, because they might be really used to you saying yes all the time. Mm. You might have to practice with it and be like, no. I actually am going to be spending time with my family or no, I'm not available to do that this time. It's you don't have to apologize or explain. Right. You don't, you don't even have to explain. You could be like, no, I can't do that right now. Yeah. I think part of it too, is we assume that we're not saying no. And we're like, we're just saying, yes, we're just taking things on when the reality is, Mm-hmm. You're still saying no. You're just saying no to self-care or no to time by yourself or no to recharging your batteries or no to mm-hmm. taking care of your family. Like you are in fact saying no. You're just not seeing it, but when you say yes, it's a no to something else. And so energetically what you're telling the universe is I just want more work, work, work. I just want to exert myself. I just want to give, give, give. Mm -hmm. Until you start saying no, the universe can't redirect what it's sending you. If if you're not manifesting your dream house, but you're willing to take on whatever, you're saying yes to a house and you're saying no to your dream house because you're not willing to wait for it or put in the work or even a relationship. If you're saying yes to whatever your partner wants to do, you are in fact saying no. You're saying no to you, to yourself. And how is it that we can give love if you can't love yourself and you can't give yourself the affection, the the time, the care that you give other people? Eventually, you're going to run dry and eventually you're yeah. going to deplete yourself. And so just throwing it out there, saying no really does create that space for you to receive your manifestation, whatever it could be. maybe it's just rest. Maybe you're just like seeking rest and you need to say, no, I can't do that this weekend. I just need a day to myself. Also, rest is productive as fuck. Just a side note. Rest is in fact getting things done. Mm -hmm. Oh, preach. Preach, preach, preach. I, you know, it's recently I decided I was not going to work on Wednesdays. And which I love for that. I thank you. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's made it so I can work with my trauma clients much better because they take a lot of they take a lot of me, and I need to be present for them, and be able to be my best self, and then also to be able to do nothing, or do what I want to do. Like I'm bringing the '70s back with some macrame. I see I that. I love it. <laughs> I get some time to pursue things that I want to do or nap, you know, like things that I, that feed me. And it's so important to feed yourself, whatever that is to feed yourself. If that means that you're going out with a friend to margaritas, awesome. If that's what you want, if it feeds you, whatever that is. Remember not to lose sight of what feeds you. 
I have a whole episode about this called pouring from an empty cup. So if you want to hear more about this, go back and listen to that episode. I will link it in the show notes for you guys. I just love, love, love having you on the podcast, having you on my computer screen because I'm far away now and I don't get to see you in person. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I just this has been one of my favorite episodes. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime I can see your gorgeous face just makes me so, so happy. Make sure you hit that follow button to never miss an episode. Share and tag to let me know that you're listening or share with someone that you know needs to be a part of this movement. To get the most out of this community, your community, I encourage you to join the exclusive Law of Love Community Facebook group and follow the podcast on Instagram at lawoflove.podcast. You can also send me an email at hello at lawoflovecommunity.com. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon and get exclusive perks. 